Well, good morning, everyone. Happy Pentecost. If you don't know what Pentecost is, now you get to find out. A Pentecost, you can hear Penta in there. Maybe if you're a fan of the band Pentatonics, you know that that's five, right? Pentecost is actually just a word that means 50th or 50th day. Uh, The festival of Pentecost is celebrated 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. In fact, most churches across the world today are celebrating the festival of Pentecost, just like we are. And the reason that most churches across the world are celebrating Pentecost today is that the church has operated on a church calendar for almost 2,000 years. Um, I'll put a picture of the calendar up here just so you can get a little, little idea of what it looks like. Every year, we spend half of our year focusing on the events of Jesus' life, his actions, and then half of the year spent focusing on Jesus' words, what he said. Uh, The year starts, you can see it up there at the top, at Advent, when Jesus is coming, and then Christmas when he is born. After that, we have the season of Epiphany, which focuses on Jesus' miracles, so he reveals himself to be the Savior of the world. Then we have Lent, which focuses on Jesus' trip to the cross, Good Friday, which is his death, and then the Easter season, which of course is his resurrection from the dead. After that, though, we transition into the Pentecost season, or maybe if you come from a Catholic background, you've heard it called Ordinary Time. This is the time of the year where we focus on Jesus' words. Now, Cross of Life is a little bit weird. Um, We're a bit of a hybrid when it comes to the church year. Sometimes we do this. We follow the church year. You remember maybe thinking back to Lent when we did the Give It Up sermon series. We focused on Jesus' trip to the cross. Or maybe back in December when we did God Goes First, we focused on Jesus um, coming, right? God is going to go first for us. But other times of the year, we switch it up. And we do a sermon series that doesn't really necessarily focus on the words or works of Jesus, but is on a different part of the scripture or a different topic entirely. And the reason we do that is because we as a congregation value the history of the church and value our current context. So we believe that the church has been existing for thousands of years before us, and that there have been really smart, really spiritual people who have put together good systems of how to do church that we should respect and honor. One of those is this church year. On the other hand, we realize that no one has been a church in Mississauga in 21st century Canada before us. And so we have to respect our own context and see that sometimes we need to preach on what matters to our congregation at this time. Now, in general, we never, uh, never miss the high festivals of the church. That would be Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. And the reason we don't is because they are three definitive moments in what it means to be a Christian. The first of those, Christmas, you know what happens on Christmas, Jesus is born, right? If Jesus does not become a human being, then you, human being, cannot be saved. Jesus' resurrection at Easter is the centerpiece of all Christianity. You remember this if if you were here for the visit sermon series. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. Your faith is futile, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15. Pentecost, though, is often the forgotten of those three high festivals of the church. But we're going to focus on it today and hopefully get you just about everything out of this text because it is huge for the life of the church. And I think it is often misunderstood. Pentecost is the origin story of the church. And as such, it gives us kind of a framework for what Christianity is going to look like now that Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. And so we're going to focus on this text and hopefully pull those things out. 
Pentecost is the kickstart of the New Testament church. It's the switch from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Now, if you're not familiar with those terms, don't worry, I'm going to explain them to you. Um, In the Old Testament, when God was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, he gave a specific promise to a man named Abraham. Abraham received a promise that through his family tree, so through the passing on of his genetic line, the Savior would come into the world. And you maybe remember some of the stories that follow Abraham and his family, right? Abraham gives birth to Isaac, and Isaac gives birth to Jacob, and Jacob gives birth to 12 sons, one of whom is Judah, and the line carries on through them. Along with this promise, though, the Messiah would come through a certain genetic line, God made a covenant with an entire nation. The reason he did this was to insulate that line of the Savior, so that that line of the Savior could continue on until Jesus was born. Now, God's promise to this nation, the nation called Israel, the Israelites, was that if they would abide by certain rules that God had given them, he would watch over them, protect them, guard them, keep them through all of their history until the Messiah came. Now, sometimes they were faithful to that covenant that God had made with them. Sometimes they were faithful to worshiping the true God and listening to his laws. And they were blessed during those times. Sometimes they were not so faithful and bad things happened to them. You can read the Old Testament and read about the exile or the destruction of their their, uh, tabernacle or their nation or their enslavements, multiple of them. But through it all, God kept his promise that that genetic line would come to the Savior. Now, Pentecost is the moment where that old covenant that God set up for the nation of Israel that said, if you abide by these rules, it will insulate you from the rest of the world and will bring forth the promised Messiah. At Pentecost, it all ends, and the new covenant begins. Now, if you've never thought of Pentecost as the switch between the old and new covenants, that's okay. A lot of Christianity likes to talk about Pentecost as a moment where the Holy Spirit inflames the church with power. And that's not untrue. Obviously, you read the text with me, The apostles get the ability to speak in other languages. From them come miraculous signs such as healings and visions. You hear the prophecy from Joel that people are going to be able to prophesy and dream dreams and visions and these sorts of things. But that's not the main point of Pentecost. Sometimes it's preached that Pentecost is all about mission work. 3,000 people added to the church's number that day. We should let the Holy Spirit fill our congregation so we can go out and do lots of mission work and save lots of souls. And while it's absolutely true that the Holy Spirit works through our congregation to do mission work and to save souls, that's also not the main point of Pentecost. In fact, many of these details are sort of auxiliary to the main point of what Peter preaches and what Luke, the author of Acts, is trying to teach you about the origin story of the church. So today I'm going to do a little bit more teaching than preaching. I'm going to hopefully walk you through the text and get you to see the elements of the text that show us what the actual main point of Pentecost is. And then at the end, I hope to preach it to you and drive it home so that you can see joy in your failure to be a perfect Christian. So you remember how this text starts, right? All the disciples, the apostles are are gathered in one room. They're in there for fear of the Jews. Now this text doesn't tell you this, but there is another reason that they're all gathered together. Jesus had told them to do that. Before Jesus had died and ascended and gone to heaven, 
Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem, and I will send the Holy Spirit to you, and he will take care of you. I'm leaving, so I can't be here, so I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. Disciples are all waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, and then, of course, he comes in a very miraculous way, right? There's a violent wind that shakes the foundation of the house, and there are wisps of fire that appear above their head, and they're all able to speak different languages. If they were good Old Testament believers, which we can assume they were, they would have seen this as a specific reference back to an Old Testament text. Maybe one that you remember if you were here for week one of the joy of failure. The story of Elijah. Where Elijah was put into the cleft of a rock and God sent against him, what? A wind, an earthquake, and a fire. But do you remember what the Bible said about those things in 1 Kings? It said that God was not in any of them. It's not that God didn't send them, but that God's presence was not contained in those things. But what came next was a gentle whisper, a voice, which was God's voice, which God expected Elijah to listen to. So think about these apostles. They're sitting in this upper room, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, and then they see wind that shakes the house and fire. In their mind, the progression is, all right, wind, earthquake, fire, speaking. And they get wind, earthquake, fire, speaking. They knew immediately that they were the ones who were now supposed to speak. God had passed the baton to them. Now you are the ones who are supposed to go out and speak. And that's just what they did, right? With many languages, they went out and spoke to all the Jews who were gathered in Jerusalem for the festival of weeks, which was a kind of harvest festival after the Passover. A couple things to note about what they did and how they spoke, though. First of all, that the word began to speak in the text is actually just one Greek word, and it means to speak a divine oracle or to speak on behalf of God. So these guys who were going out, they weren't just making small talk with people in other languages. They were actually speaking what God had asked them to speak. And the Bible tells us that they spoke these things in other languages. Now, it's important to know that those other languages that they spoke were known human languages. You might wonder to yourself, why do I care if they're known human languages? That maybe seems kind of obvious. There are some who would say that this text is teaching that by the power of the Holy Spirit, people should be able to speak in angelic tongues, languages that are not known by anyone else, that kind of sound like maybe even babbling to some of us. That's not true. That's not what the text says. And there's a couple pieces of evidence in the text for you to see so that you can know that that's not true, that these were actually known human languages. First of all, the phrase other tongues assumes that there was a known tongue and that this tongue was different and yet similar. The word there is hetero in Greek. You know it from maybe heterosexual, right? Other, different, but yet in the same category. These languages were different yet in the same category. They were known languages. Explicitly, the people who are there say, we're all hearing them in our own language. They weren't hearing Babel. They were hearing exact words that they knew. They understood what the apostles were saying to them. On top of this, we of course also have the historic evidence that the idea of languages that were angelic and babbling um, is actually an invention of false teachers from the the 18th century following the Enlightenment era. Um, And so the idea that 
the church would babble with languages and say that this was the gift of tongues is unfortunately not true. What these apostles were speaking were known languages that these many people, and you heard the list, many people from many different areas of the world would have known. Now what they said is the wonders of God. That's what those, uh, the audience heard. They said, we all hear them speaking in our own tongues the wondrous works of God. What were they saying? And while Peter obviously preaches the gospel that Jesus has died and Jesus has risen, but what they were probably saying at this point was that it was the end of the covenant. That Jesus coming and Jesus rising and Jesus going to heaven was the sign that God had ended the old covenant and had begun the new covenant. And why do we say that? Because the people assume that those apostles are drunk. Now just follow me on this. If someone comes up to you and is speaking in your language, but you don't expect them to speak in your language, would you call them drunk? Probably not, right? Let's just use an example. You go like, way into the heart of Quebec and you don't know any French and you expect everyone to speak French there, but someone comes up to you and speaks English. Would you say you're drunk? No, you'd probably be surprised, but you wouldn't assume that the person was drunk. So why do they say these men must be drunk? Well, because of what they were saying, right? What they were saying was, it's the end of the old covenant, Jesus has risen, and there is a new covenant now in place. Now just to wrap your mind around how monumental of a shift this would have been for those people. Imagine for a second if someone came into our church this Sunday and said, okay, so you got your Bible, right? And you believe that that's where God speaks to you through the scriptures. Actually, you don't need that anymore. What you need are the complete works of Dr. Seuss, and that's where God is going to speak to you. You would all say, you're drunk, right? What these apostles were advocating for them was that thousands of years of tradition and history and the way that they had formed their nation was suddenly over with. It was the end. It was a a new covenant that was coming into place. The Bible says that these people who were hearing this were God-fearing Jews, which means they were faithful believers of the old covenant. They would have been what what we think of as Old Testament Christians. Which helps us understand, again, why Pentecost is the story of the Old Covenant becoming the New. This isn't really mission work. These people were already believers. They were just missing a critical piece of information for being a New Testament Christian, that Jesus was the Messiah. So God gathered all these Jews, all these Christians from all over the world at that point in one city and gave the apostles the ability to speak in all of their languages— So they could let every one of those Jews know Jesus is the Messiah and the new covenant is in place now. So they would all go home and tell all of their communities that the old covenant had passed away and the new covenant was now in place. The gift of tongues at this point was specifically for this context. That there were many people of many different backgrounds many different spoken languages who needed to know a critical piece of information for the New Testament to begin. Now, what also made these people very frustrated was that they understood how God had given revelations or prophecy in the past. 
In the Old Testament, when a prophet was put into place, into office, it was very obvious. There was an anointing. Everyone kind of knew this guy's the prophet of God. Whether they believed him or not was a whole other story, but they at least knew this was the guy. But all of a sudden, there were 12 guys, all speaking on behalf of God, and no one really knew why they were doing that. Aren't these all Galileans? Aren't these just normal dudes that we all kind of know? What God was doing was proving to that generation of Israelites that his word was now going to be proclaimed in a different way. Not just through the mouth of specific prophets, but as Peter would say later, through the mouths of all people. I will pour out my spirit on all people. And your young men and your old men and your women and your servants, both male and female, they will prophesy. They will speak God's word. Why did God do it this way? Why didn't he just drop a book out of the sky and say, here's your new scriptures? Because that was the culture they were in. Maybe you remember Jesus talking this way when he says, uh, Jews look for signs and Greeks seek wisdom. The Jews had always understood that when, when God was going to show up, he was going to do it with some sort of miraculous sign to validate that it was his presence. So God did it again here. A miraculous sign of giving men who had no business speaking in many different languages the ability to miraculously speak in all those languages. So that that completely unbelievable message that that guy, that Jesus from Nazareth, that no-name town in the middle of nowhere, who's probably the illegitimate son of Joseph, he's the Messiah. And he's the Messiah because he came back to life. Don't you know how death works? God showed this miraculous sign so that the people would believe that Jesus was the Messiah and the new covenant had begun. But of course, this is a hard thing for them to believe even with the sign. So God did what he always does when he wants us to believe something. He speaks. He spoke specifically through the apostle Peter, who quotes from Joel and then preaches the gospel to these people so that they can know that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, I want to walk through the the prophecy that he quotes from Joel so you understand what he's saying and how, again, this is a picture of the old covenant turning to the new. Um, You remember the prophecy in in total, right? He says, In the last days, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh, young men, old men, maidservants, manservants, they'll all prophesy, dreaming dreams, this sort of thing. I will give signs, billows of smoke, fire, earthquakes, And this will all happen before the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Remember this? To understand what Peter is is doing, I think you have to walk through his prophecy backwards. To start at the end and work your way to the front. Peter says, look everyone, what's happening here, I know it looks weird, but it's definitely not that we're drunk. It's only nine in the morning. What's happening is there is a specific prophecy from Joel that is being fulfilled right in front of your face. Now, at the end of the prophecy, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So what does that indicate? It indicates that in this time period, the Christian church will be made up of all sorts of people. People regardless of their ethnicity or their uh, citizenship in any one nation. This was a huge shift, right? In the Old Testament, God stayed with one nation. And yes, people were pulled in from other nations as they went along, but it was still the one nation that was God's. When this prophecy was fulfilled, suddenly 
God's church was not just one nation, but it was all over the place. And you can see the results. We're still living in that time where there are all sorts of different people from all different ethnic backgrounds all across the world who call upon the name of the Lord and are saved. Peter says that this will all happen before the great and glorious day of the Lord. What's the great and glorious day of the Lord? Well, if you read Peter's letters later, 1 Peter and 2 Peter, you'll find out that Peter uses this phrase as a technical term for the end of the world. So it is going to be like this until the end of the world. And when is it going to start? Well, it's going to start in the last days. That's how he starts the, the, uh, the prophecy, right? In the last days is the time after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So he gives us a time parameter, right? He says, in this time, after Jesus' resurrection till the end of the world, the church will be spread across the whole world. And the way that God is going to make that happen is by pouring out his spirit on all people. And he's going to show amazing signs, things like billows of smoke and earthquakes and darkness, to prove that this is now that time. So think, when has there been earthquakes and darkness recently in this story? About 53 days earlier, when a man was hanging on a cross and the whole world turned to darkness for three hours. The ground shook and the rocks split and the curtain torn in two. Beyond that, though, there's another edge to this. This is apocalyptic language. Uh, apocalyptic language is a genre of literature that was used more often in that culture than it is in our culture now, where they would use a elaborate hyper hyperbolic uh, picture language to tell a story. Um, the best example of this probably is the book of Revelation. So if you read the last book of the Bible, you'll see that it's full of all sorts of crazy pictures. That's apocalyptic language. It's not that there are literally these things, but that they are pictures of something. We talk a little bit like this still in our culture today. We say things like, um, he, he dropped a bomb on me. Well, did he actually drop an explosive device on you? No. But what he did or what he said was so powerful, so cataclysmic in your life that it shook the very foundations of who you were. In the same way, God says there are going to be signs that are going to show a cataclysmic, complete change of the way that I have been worshipped and how you are to spread my word. Now that's going to be accompanied by a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And that pouring out of the Holy Spirit is going to lead people to prophesy, is what Peter says. Our biggest struggle with this part of the text is that we don't really have a good understanding of the word prophesy. If you think of prophecy, you probably think of predicting the future, right? And that's not wrong, but that's definitely not all that's contained in the word prophecy. Prophecy is to speak for God. If you look back on the Old Testament prophets, sometimes they were predicting the future on behalf of God, sometimes they were talking about the present on behalf of God, and sometimes they would talk about the past on behalf of God. To prophesy is simply to speak God's words. If you understand it correctly, you could say that I, right now, am prophesying. I'm speaking God's words to you. You do that when you speak to each other. You prophesy. Now, most of us don't talk like that because it's easily misunderstood, but that's really what the text is saying. In this time, it won't be that God will call one specific person to be the voice of God to a whole nation or a whole group of people, but that everyone will be able to speak his word. And that's what still happens, right? 
you have God's words written down for you so that you can repeat them and know them and apply them to each other. Young men, old men, women, children, they can all prophesy. They can speak on behalf of God. Now, specifically at this time, in order to get this kickstarted, God gave amazing gifts of prophecy to the apostles specifically, where they could speak words that would eventually be written down as the scriptures we have today. But with their death and the finishing of the scriptures that we have, we no longer needed that. We had God's words. We still have them. And we still prophesy right now. Now, if I lost you, don't worry. Let's summarize here, okay? God says that with the resurrection of Jesus, the old covenant will pass away and the new covenant will start. This new covenant will be marked by the ability of all people to speak God's words to each other. It will be a cataclysmic change, but the result will be that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, regardless of age, gender, ethnicity, or citizenship, will be saved. You good with me so far? Let's move on to the next part then. And I'm going to go a lot faster with this part because Peter's really just making one big point with the next part of his sermon. And I'll summarize it for you like this. Uh, Peter stands up and says, all right, guys, you know David? Like King David, most famous king in your nation's history? He wrote this crazy thing that his Lord was going to raise him from the dead. You can read it in Psalm 16, actually, if you want to. But here's the thing. David's body's right over there. So how is that going to happen? Well, probably by a Savior who can actually raise the dead. Now, how would there be a Savior who could raise the dead? Well, maybe if he was God and he was able to raise himself. Now, the craziest thing just happened about 50 days ago. There was this guy named Jesus, and he died, and now he's alive. You guys killed him, but God raised him. So follow me here. You trust David. David said the Messiah will rise. Jesus rose. Jesus is the Messiah. You follow? And while that maybe seems simple to us, it's actually really profound. If you read the whole book of Acts after this point, after chapter 2, you'll see sermon after sermon after sermon that say the exact same thing. Jesus is alive. What are you going to do about it? And it's unfortunate that in a lot of North American churches, we've lost that as the centerpiece of our preaching. We talk a lot about God's love, which isn't untrue, but is only a factor in our salvation. We talk a lot about God's will for your life or the ways that you should obey him, which are not untrue, but are simply a factor in our salvation. But the main message of Scripture again and again is that Jesus is alive. What are you going to do about it? If Jesus is alive, if he can come back to life after being dead, then he is God. And if he is God, then you have to submit to him. I don't know if I preach that way all the time. (laughs) I wish I did. I strive to. I hope you strive to in the way that you talk to each other, in the way that you witness your faith. Jesus is alive. What are you going to do about it? Well, you saw the effect that it had on the people there, right? They were cut. Their hearts were burdened. They asked, brothers, 
What should we do? But Peter says exactly what the church has been saying ever since then. Repent and be baptized, right? Repent and be baptized. Very simple, but again, very profound. Repent and be baptized. That is the essence of the church. The church does all sorts of crazy cool stuff. It's true. But what makes us church is repentance and baptism. The forgiveness of sins that God gives to those who are willing to acknowledge that they cannot pull it off and have no chance to. And the promise that he will save them through the power of his name put on them through their baptism. Many of you are baptized. You have that promise. The Jesus who is going to raise King David on the last day will also raise you. He proved it by raising himself from the dead. And the words about it, the message about it has been preached to you by those who have been prophesying based on the scriptures so that you, as you call upon the name of the Lord, can be saved. Now the result of a church that is focused on constant repentance and repeating the promises that God is faithful to your baptismal, uh, baptismal grace is what caused the church that we see at the end of the chapter. Acts 2.42 so pivotal in the life of the church. In fact, some churches have named themselves after this verse, 242 Church. I've heard this before. The church dedicated itself to four things. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. And the result was that they gave to each other and that many continued to be added to their number. What are those four things? The apostles' teaching is the scriptures, right? For them, it was being spoken by the living apostles at that time, but as the apostles died and were martyred, the writings that those apostles had put down on paper became the apostles' teaching. It's what we still have today. Fellowship is not just coffee and donuts after church. Fellowship is an English word that's a combination of two English words, fellow and shape. Fellowship is to be congruent with another person in life. The most obvious way you do this is in marriage, right? Two people going different directions in their life make their lives congruent. They go the same direction together. They have the same goals, same mission, and they work together to accomplish those things. The Christian church should do the same. That we would make our lives congruent to each other. Not that we would just say, hey, how are you, and make small talk after church, but that we would seek to be involved in each other's life in such a way that our lives would become congruent that we would take on a fellow shape. One way that Luke sees the church doing this is by breaking bread. Some commentators like to say that this is the Lord's Supper. It might be. It's not conclusive. But I'm pretty convinced that it's just eating together. How many of us do that? We take time to be in each other's houses to eat together. When you do that, a a lot of really cool conversations start to happen. You start to take on fellow shape with each other. And finally, the fourth of those, he says, is prayer, which was a technical term for the corporate worship of the congregations at that time. They would call them the prayers. They would come to God's house or to a house of a a Christian. They would hear the word, and then they would pray, which would also include singing. This church was simple, wasn't it? Read the words, get involved in each other's lives, and worship together. That's what you get 
when you preach a simple message. Jesus is alive. What are you going to do about it? Repent and be baptized. And that's the new covenant. That's where we live right now. That's our origin story. Origin stories are really interesting. They tell you a lot about a person, don't they? Maybe some of you have heard the origin story of possibly the most famous man in Toronto at this moment in history, Kawhi Leonard. Do you know his origin story? Grew up in Los Angeles, a bad part of the city. When he was playing basketball at age 16, his dad was shot and killed at a car wash, and the killer was never found. As you can imagine, it broke Kawhi's heart. But ever since then, he made basketball his life. And his almost uncanny stoic appearance on the basketball court is a testament to how he lets those emotions go when he's on the basketball court. That steely, unemotional gaze that he has, whether he makes a three or gets called for a terrible call of a foul, can be attributed, a little bit at least, to his origin story. Maybe you have an origin story. Grew up in this neighborhood or that neighborhood. My parents were like this or like that. I was the child of however many kids. It determines a little bit of who you are today, doesn't it? Pentecost is your origin story as the church. What is the church like? The church is filled with the Holy Spirit so that we would speak God's words to each other. So that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord would be saved until that great and glorious day of the Lord when Jesus comes back and raises David and you and me to eternal life. Jesus is alive. What are you going to do about it? You know, if you were assembling a team of people to kick off the new covenant of the eternal Christian church, you probably wouldn't have picked these guys. You wouldn't have picked people who could have easily been called hypocritical because they were the ones who ran away when Jesus was getting arrested and put on the cross. You wouldn't have picked Peter to be the main speaker, the guy who denied Jesus outright three times. Because by our standards, if you want a really good team to pull off a big task, you pick the best people. But that's not who God picks. God picks oddballs, ragamuffins, messed up people. People who have broken just about everything in their life and don't have any hope left other than to put their eternity into Jesus' hands. That's who Jesus uses. That's who he used at Pentecost and who he still uses today. If you've ever wondered if you're good enough for God, the answer is no, but that's exactly where God wants you. If you're someone who's not good enough for God, then God wants to use you. God wants to put his words into your mouth so that you can preach, you can prophesy, tell people who Jesus is and what he has done for them. Remind them that Jesus is alive. What are you going to do about it? It may not always sound perfect, but as we saw in the story of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit uses those words to convert many hearts. I pray that the story of Pentecost sinks deep into your heart as your origin story. 
that as you live your Christian life and participate in this congregation, you see your main goal is to preach the words that we should repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. And that that would lead us to dig further into scripture, to take fellowship with each other, to enjoy the company of the Christians who are in this congregation, and to make worship a priority here together. Amen.